Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So good morning, Holly. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, well, I have a dilemma. I mean, um, you know, we made this commitment that we're going to do this, what we call a deep dive into the Gospel of John. And um, I think that we're facing an oceanic amount of information to try to process and deal with. Yeah. It just seems overwhelming. Here, here Here's what I've, I've been thinking about Sunday. Um, if you read Shelby Spong's book on the Gospel of John, his vision of the sacred or of God is, he says that John's vision wants to include everyone. Mm-hmm. And what I got to thinking after writing and reading and researching yesterday and a little bit last night and today is why is it that the movement's designed to include everyone create such antagonistic reactions? So they, they proclaim inclusivity, but what they seem to create is more splintering. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to reconcile with that as simply a casualty of of this of the movement of the early church of the early Christian movement. It's um, and I don't think it's unique to let's say the, the Christian institution this splintering. You know, I I have really begun to question our moral capacity as a species, as beings, to follow the path of wholeness and healing. Um, It seems like even though as creatures on this earth, we have developed levels of consciousness that allow us to speak and create and make and invent those levels of consciousness also have deeper impacts for division, separation, splintering, as you say. And I can't reconcile those two. Like they seem such extreme opposites. Um, So it makes me wonder, I mean, this is like deep philosophical question right at the beginning of a podcast, but is is consciousness, is increased consciousness a positive, a net positive. Because it does on the one hand further divide, but it has the possibility to also unite and heal. So uh, I've been in a conversation with someone just recently who is in a great deal of pain because this person's extended family is part of the movement that I would call fundamentalist. And he is wondering what has to happen for somebody to move into um, an acknowledgement that 
there are other ways to think about things and to make that paradigm shift. And, and what we said in Ordinary Life on Sunday, this past Sunday, is that we kind of look back and down on people who didn't make um, um, the paradigm shift, say, from a Earth-centered to heliocentric-centered universe. Well, weren't they dummies? But mm -hmm. I think a paradigm shift is hard for anybody. It is. Um, at any time, and and to step into some of what uh, John is teaching um, is really to step into a world that that a lot of people are just frightened of. I think because it it's so unknown. Yeah, I, I remember reading Jim Hollis's book, um, uh, uh, and he said, you know that so many people when it comes to religion are still wearing the clothes they had in junior high school. Mm -hmm. They're wearing shoes too small for them. Mm. And um, they're committed to doing that for some reason. And it's, yeah. just, it's just problematic. So it's going to be interesting to see how you and I navigate trying to talk about this bigger world. Um, I, I, the work that I've written so far I looked back on it uh, last night and I thought, you know, what was going on when the Gospel of John was written was a church fight. Yeah. And it was a church fight. Yeah. You know, like, uh, should we buy the new chandelier or not? Right. <laughs> well, but that church fight is still going on, right? It, only the question is, should we allow these people to be part of this or not? You right. know, we're, we're making sweeping generalizations about one's right or ability to have a relationship with the sacred based on really superficial things uh -huh. you know and um yeah i mean the paradigm shift that you mentioned you know i, I feel like we are pulled forth and by we i just mean human beings um by equal parts fear and curiosity and I just, you know, a single person can sort of be pulled in two directions by those two things, by fear and curiosity, by restriction and expansion. We're in this constant sort of battle, it seems, um, with constriction and expansion, constriction and expansion. I mean, that's the way breath works, right? It constricts and then it expands, it constricts and then it expands, but it's like how to move into deeper breaths, how to move into deeper spaces. Um, I, I'm really struggling, I have to say, with just kind of our human, our humanness right now, our, mm -hmm. our inability to act from more love rather than more fear. And I feel like everything around me right now is showing me more fear. Mm. With some, okay, and then I say that and I go, but you know what, how I started my morning this morning? Um, <laughs> I went outside to throw some trash away and like, I have to check this little thing in the pool every day. And there were five baby frogs around the wall of the pool. And my son and I rescued each one of the baby frogs because they can't kind of get over the edge. They can hang onto the side, but they can't get over the edge. 
And I thought of the starfish story, you know, does does it matter? Look at all these thousands of starfish on the beach. How in the world are you possibly going to get to all of them? And he holds up the starfish and says, well, it matters to this one, right? So I thought of that and I thought, well, what a sweet little moment that my son, my oldest son loves frogs, like loves amphibians. He's a, takes a deep dive into these topics and he can tell you hundreds of species of frogs. Um, you know, so we did this little act together. And then, you know, just behind us as we're talking, I'm trying not to laugh because my dog was just belly up, <laughs> you know, just rolling around being a dog, just dogging, you know? So there's this quality of us that is so beautiful and so tender. And then there's this quality of us that is so fearful and so small. <sighs> so uh, let's go back to your thing about the capacity that humans have for experiencing wholeness and growth. Um, we're, we're going to um, probably draw on a multitude of resources in talking about John. And we, we, we clearly don't have much of a roadmap. We're using John Sanford's book and, and Shelby Spong's book. But my experience is getting into it. We didn't try to tackle the prologue this, this Sunday. And... Um, the prologue begins with one of the most familiar passages in Christian scripture, Mm -hmm. whether people are regular churchgoers or not, they probably know this because this passage is read every Christmas Advent season around the Christmas Eve service or Sunday Mm -hmm. service in Advent. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. people have, have um, come to think that the word that John is writing about is Jesus. Right. And we're going to clearly say that that is both true and untrue. Mm -hmm. And the truth of that, I was found by this morning in the um, email daily devotional that the Center for Action and Contemplation sends Mm -hmm. out because it was today written by Jim Finley. And Jim Finley is a man through whom I have experienced the sacred. Mm -hmm. I love Jim Finley. I love his writing, his speaking. I love being in his presence. Mm -hmm. And for those people who don't know, Jim Finley grew up in an extremely abusive, alcoholic family where his Irish Catholic mother would not, did not, could not, for whatever reason, protect Finley from his very abusive, alcoholic Irish father. Mm -hmm. When Finley was in high school, he somehow read something about and by Thomas Merton. He'd never heard of a monastery, didn't know anything about monasteries, but he started reading about it. He started writing Gethsemane Monastery, where Thomas Merton was in Kentucky. And when he graduated from high school, Merton went to the monastery. At the time he entered, Thomas Merton was the novice master and became Jim Finley's spiritual director Mm -hmm. for all the time that Finley was in the monastery. 13 years, I think. I'm not sure about that. 
And what Finley said in this daily devotional today was that Thomas Merton became for him the intermediary for the sacred, that through Thomas Merton, Finley experienced that there was safety and acceptance and oneness in the sacred mystery. So he made this transition in his own life into seeing what he would eventually teach teach us is I'm not you, I'm not other than you, I'm not God, I'm not other than God. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is exactly what the author authors of John are saying about Jesus. Mm -hmm. That Jesus himself said, if we take the reading seriously, that what, what the writers of John are saying is that in Jesus, there is an experience of the sacred. It's not the only place where you can have it. It's not the exclusive place, but it is a place. And seeing Jesus that way is just so liberating mm -hmm. uh, and, and divisive at the same time. Yeah. That's a paradox for me. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that paradox of... Um, even just the phrase of let's say there's unity and diversity is a paradoxical phrase, right? And and I think that that's the struggle that we engage with as Christians, as religious people in general, as people as seekers is how do we hold all of these different expressions of um, faith and of religion and even of the same religion in the context of of unity, of seeking something more whole. Um, and I think Jim Finley does such a wonderful job of holding and teaching those of us who have been lucky enough to learn from him in any capacity, holding the broken with the whole, the pain with the joy, the grief with the celebration. He, he's so brilliant at, at that. And and that, you know, that may very well be the sort of answer to my lament is <laughs> why are we so, and then we're so beautiful. Why are we so fearful and, and then so creative at the same time is the what Sanford really gets at in his discussion of the Gospel of John is that it's all about integrating. It's all about integrating these, these opposites within. Um, the depth of our spirit with life and death, really. I mean, it's the life, death, rebirth cycle that's integrated again and again and again in the human experience. Um, and it will be a deep challenge to sort of go, what elements of John, you know, are we gonna go by it word by word by word and read the whole thing to our class? <laughs> or are we gonna pull these sort of moments from John. Well, this Sunday, we're going to do the prologue, the mm -hmm. first six verses. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I think that the important thing to get across, at least where I'm, what my reading and study and writing are, are leading me right now is to be able to articulate as clearly as we possibly can that when John uses the word logos, mm -hmm. 
in the beginning was the logos. He's not talking about Jesus. I was going to say he's setting it in the context of, of time, right? He's setting it in this con this arc of time. Yeah, and and we'll do our best to explain the different meanings of the word logos. <laughs> um, Richard Rohr uh, says that a better word for logos is blueprint. Hmm. But I think it's in Sanford that John Sanford says that the better word, a better way to translate that would have been one, not to have translated it at all. Yeah. Just to leave it as the word logos. Mm -hmm. But um, he said that probably um, a better translation would have been in the beginning, um, God herself, himself, however you want to say, whatever pronoun you want to put with that. And that's why I thought we would give the title to the Sunday about um, how do you express yourself. But the more I've been with it, I'm thinking maybe that's a misleading title because the title is um, one of the things we have to run into is the risk of inclusion causing more alienation. I mean, I we have to say something about that, don't you think? Wait, I say mean, more. How does John the title? How does the title well, relate to that risk? Um, the vision that the, that the community that John is writing to mm -hmm. had this very inclusive vision of the sacred. Everyone is in. Right. Nobody is excluded. And they did that in the context of the Jewish Christian community that they were part of. And that by the year 90, when John was written, that Jewish community had become located in the law, in the Torah, and there was a whole group of people who were, um, their sacred religious responsibility was to make sure that nobody broke the law, that the law was adhered to, and Jesus and the John community said, no, 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 no. The law is made for us, not we for the law. And so Jesus goes around and breaks all the laws <laughs> and um, eventually gets into huge trouble because of that. And what John will end up saying, and we will see it time and time and time again in the Gospel of John, Jesus reaches out to cross boundaries to include the other to break rules that excluded people, to be inclusive. And that whole act of inclusivity caused such a reaction among the Jewish community yeah. who were committed to the law that it caused a fracture. Yeah. Inclusivity, fracture. Yeah. Well, I'm still not that seeing the sense? problem. Yes, I'm just not seeing the problem with your title. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm not seeing you made the title. Yeah. How about how do you express yourself? Yes. Yeah. Well, let's stick with it. Yeah. I so that's what I'm trying to understand is where's the problem with the title? Because I've begun to think about um, you know, in some ways, what you're what you just described, this, you know, Jesus crossed boundaries, opened doors, um, kind of bulldozed past these uh, artificial boundaries that divided um 
but that inclusion was in some ways a choice, right? Where someone decided to stand it is the choice. And so how do we sort of relate to those who chose not to be included in this movement of inclusion? You know, I don't, we don't hear very many statements of Jesus judging those people who didn't choose to be part of this community, but we definitely hear, um, hear the preferential wording of inclusion in Jesus's teachings, right? So it's not, it's kind of like a um, cataphatic, right? Like this group, this community that chooses inclusion, this community that's choosing to move forth in unity, um, which as we have seen over the last 2000 years has fractured and fractured and fractured and fractured. <laughs> it's not very whole, you know? And anyways, I, I guess I'm, I'm having a hard time sort of wrapping up my thought, but um, we hear the teaching that inclusion and wholeness is ideal. What do we make of the fractured divisiveness that exists mm-hmm. in the context of Christianity? Um, if it all belongs, what do we do with those who are so against it all belonging? That's a conundrum. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. How do we include those voices too? Those who are against yeah. the very thing that we're saying Jesus was for. Right. Right. And, and, and that's very much something that's going on um, in our culture right now. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that we are splintering more and more into hostile camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this kind of sense of extreme caution about what you even say casually to someone, right? Um, mm-hmm. That could elicit strong feelings. And, and I think that's even particular to our social location, being in Texas, you know, mm-hmm. just what has come forth with uh, mask mandates. Um, where people stand on vaccinations, the laws that just got are about to be signed in today, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, restricting women's choices around their bodies. Um, you know, these we, we even in casual comments in our social location, it feels dangerous. Mm-hmm. So and the whole thing about open carry in Texas Open carry. Yeah. Causing gun sales to increase. I have a, a colleague who made a, to me what was a very interesting observation uh, a number of weeks ago in explaining this anger that is coming from like the, the people who were responsible for the January 6th insurrection, right? Mm-hmm. And what my colleague said is that these people who fit a white demographic are seeing people from other ethnicities, Hispanics, African-Americans, Indians, Asians, in this country, working hard, making accomplishments, and 
achieving more economically, educationally, culturally, socially than the people who were the majority of those who did the, the January 6th insurrection. I, I, I don't mean to label or group people in, but I think there's a great deal of truth in that, that people are angry that the system that they've been part of and benefited from so long is coming to an end. Maybe, you know, but it's interesting, though, because some of the people who were profiled from January 6th, um, my mother said that she knew two people from West U who went. That That's not a group. That's not a that's not a. That's not a population of people who feel marginalized or, or um, impoverished or who are watching um, minorities and immigrants do better than them. You know, uh, there was a wealthy uh I believe doctor from Dallas who was there, you know, so, so I, I guess I hear what you're saying that they're seeing people who don't look mm. like them do better, um, surpass certain economic limitations, um, break ceilings, you know, all in my mind, good things. Uh, but they're not necessarily achieving more than some of the people who were in at this allegedly at this January 6th insurrection. These, these were some, upper middle class folks who are doing uh, just fine, you know? Well, uh, certainly going back to John and connecting it to, to John, the um, people who were the most opposed to Jesus were those at the top who ran the show, yeah. who made the rules. So maybe people from, say, Westview who participated in January 6th feel that their position of privilege is being threatened. Yeah. That yeah, maybe that's the more that that they're they're afraid that their power or privilege is being challenged. And it, and this is the scarcity thinking. That's the fear-based thinking, the very uncreative way of thinking that it's not a zero sum game. Just because someone who might have, be a second generation immigrant from uh, the Philippines stands to gain the same level of education as I have, uh, the maybe do better in the workplace than I have, doesn't mean that I lose something. You know, I think we have this idea that it's a zero sum game, that I have to give up something in order for you to gain. And, I, and, and in some ways, I could, you know, let's, let's tease that out a little bit. In some ways, that is true. What I have to be willing to do is to share my privilege and power and access, right? I don't necessarily lose it. Right. Um, and in sharing, but sure, I might not get as big a piece of the pie, but I'm, I, I didn't lose anything, you know? But people aren't rational. No, people are like not you. rational. <laughs> I'm not always rational either. <laughs> um, but, you know, you I know, don't I, know. Yeah. I've been mulling this over. Um, what we're talking about now, what we're going to attempt to talk about on Sunday. And I'll give you an example of something from my own life. My beautiful bride and I have gotten in it just by accident, mm -hmm. just solely by accident. We happen on a television program that's on commercial TV. Mm -hmm. I know I say I never watch TV, but this is not true. We watch the show that's on every Tuesday night. Uh, next Tuesday night will be the last one called the College Bowl, huh. and it's hosted by Peyton Manning. 
and yeah. his brother is also on it. Peyton Manning has a twin, you know, yeah. any, anyway. He has a younger brother, so they, Eli. Yeah, they're hilarious. Eli. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, the College Bowl is these colleges each send, or universities, each send three players to mm -hmm. be on this quiz program to vie for who's can answer the most questions the most accurately and so forth. And it's really fun because mm. um, I like to test my own knowledge when the questions are asked and to see how bright these babies are. I mean, they're <laughs> just children and they are so smart. And um, if the College Bowl had been put on television 10 years ago, uh-huh 15 years ago all the players would be white mm. the players last night from ucla and from the university of alabama there were two anglos mm -hmm. um out of six mm -hmm. and the other players were african-american indian and asian mm -hmm. and that shows the changing demographic i think in our culture is large and for some people, they look at that and say, wow, that's wonderful. And some people look at it and say, uh-oh, that's I don't terrifying. Like it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, that, it's, it's, it's a changing, dynamic, ever-evolving world. Uh, you know, you and I are, before recording this podcast and after recording this podcast, something about us will have changed. <laughs> you know, whether it's subtle or, or dramatic, but I, I guess it's really boils down to fear of change and folks not in feeling so secure in the worlds that we've constructed, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so how do we help people adapt to the ever-changing nature of nature? <laughs> Um, and, and this, and so I always find it interesting too, that we are relying upon wisdom from 2000 years ago to talk about the nature of change today. And of course you teach that, well, something that's true, that is truer than true, right. And has sort of perpetual wisdom. Um, but I think that that's our challenge is how does what was written or recorded 2000 years ago, help us decipher the need to be present in a changing and evolving world today? What wisdom can we draw from that um, that can help us be present to that change today? Well, because as you said, well, uh, lots was changing at that time too. There was a lot. Yeah. yeah. This is one of the things that I appreciate so much about Michael Moorwood's teaching to us is that what he what he brought out is the importance of reimagining mm -hmm. what these stories are about in light of our current understanding of cosmology. Um, it just seems to me to be more and more true that your field, evolutionary cosmology, is saying to us that we human beings are the cosmos developing the capacity to reflect upon itself. Mm -hmm. And of course, whoever wrote John didn't have that cosmology. 
Right. They were able but to ref did. reflect upon the, the the challenges of that time, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. In a different way, in a way that was very threatening to the right. establishment. Yeah, I think it was Sanford who wrote about, you know, so as you as we mentioned, the first words of John in the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was made flesh <laughs> is that the the word, as you say, was was in Jesus. Well, how does that relate to people who never met Jesus? OK, so we could see that the word was in Jesus because of this kind of um, connection, this, this depth of connection that Jesus had with the oneness of 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 his cosmology. Right. So I think what Sanford's trying to do is to say, well, then how do we as people or as as religious followers or believers or I don't I do not like the word believer and I kind of can't believe I just used it. <laughs> but um, but how do we incorporate flesh into our flesh? Right. It, having never laid eyes upon Jesus and you know, as Michael Moore, you bring up Michael Morewood, who always asks, well, what are you asking me to imagine when I pray? What are you asking me to imagine when I say a prayer to God or to Jesus or invoke these sort of cosmic beings, if you will? Um, so how would you say that the act of imagination applies here in imagining our flesh united with the teachings of Jesus, having never met Jesus. Well, that's a question I don't think I'm prepared to answer. So give me a time to reflect on it. Okay, you have, I, let's I, see, I, four days by Sunday. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, one of the things that I want to say about what I think you're asking Sunday is that um, if we were to go into a mosque, a synagogue, temple, into a Buddhist Sangha, into a uh, gathering of Sikhs, um, and you can just keep going, uh, a Native American um, gathering, um, whatever. If you were to go into one of those for their ritual of uh, some worship ritual, whatever that would be, they, they would take part of their sacred tradition and lift it up to call people to be mindful of it, to remember it, and then they would offer some interpretation of that based on current world in which we live. And I think that's what we're trying to do, mm -hmm. is that we're taking part of a tradition, not the only tradition. And we're saying, this is how this developed. This is what it meant to those who first wrote it and heard it. And this is what it can mean for us. Mm -hmm. That's and right. And that's the, that's the task of interpretation and application that the ongoing spiritual teachers have got to do for every generation. And, and we've got to be true to our own understanding of cosmology that we have right now, which will probably change in 20 years. And I think what, you know, this, I guess in kind of listening to you and also hearkening back to my own logic around this, we can't replace 
Jesus at the top of the pyramid and say, well, all of this wisdom now lives in Jesus. Jesus was just a teacher, um, of, right. you know, of, of love and unity. And if we could boil the wisdom sayings of any wisdom teacher down to one thing, it would probably be love. That right. might be true of, uh, Krishna, that might be true of Buddha, that might be true of Christ, that might be true of Gandhi, you know, all this, if we could boil it down to that one thing, it would be love. And so I guess when I think about our flesh uniting with or knowing Jesus's flesh, we know it through love, through continuing the wisdom tradition of love. And I I think I sent you that um, little quote from Spong the other day that I had just read, I had just stumbled across, but I I love that what he says is love that is not passed on dies. Love is the power that binds us to God and to one another. Love is the meaning of Jesus. And oneness is achieved in our willingness and in our ability to love one another. The challenge we face is what we started this podcast with. How do we love those who reject inclusive love? Um, we don't have time to answer <laughs> all of what I'm about to say, but I got this line from Matt Russell, mm-hmm. whom you love and I love. Yes. Matt Russell said um, to me recently that one of the things that he has learned in his own spiritual work is that um, love doesn't conquer everything. Mm. He said, love conquers the ego. And I thought that was a very liberating thing to hear because um, love is what gets the ego out of the way so that we can experience the self and hopefully communicate that self to other people. Mm -hmm. Thomas Burton said, the discovery of the true self is the same as the discovery of God. And what Sanford says, and certainly what um, Shelby Spong says, is that what Jesus did was help people see who they truly were. For sure. That's it. Yeah. Well, well, it will be so interesting to see what you're going to teach us Sunday about logos. That's right. I'm going to pass it off to you. <laughs> There is so much to say about it. (laughs) I know. I I think we're going to we're going to be challenged to um, to move at a reasonable clip going through, John, uh, because we could spend weeks just on the first six verses. I know. I mean, it grounds so much of it. And this is where and so we have to do it, do it diligently, but also so that we don't lose people in the process. And who who was the idiot that wanted to do the gospel John in the first place? Yeah, right? I mean, God, who gave us that suggestion? (laughs) I'll see you Sunday. Alrighty. See ya. Love you. Love you too.